0: We treat the future like a distant colonial outpost, as if there was nobody there. Is there any way of injecting long-term thinking into the very structures of democracy itself? And I believe there is.
1: This is the Dépendance podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen.
2: And my name is Geert Maarse and we are back in our studio. Thijs, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. I have one simple question for you today. Are you a good ancestor? That's a
1: difficult one, but I don't know. I I, I don't own a car. I stopped flying. You rarely eat meat. I rarely eat meat, mostly vegetarian. But I do use disposable diapers for my little kids. I don't know. It's 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 not something I think about every day
2: until now because we've both read the book The Good Ancestor. Exactly. Which is amazing. It blew my mind in its simplicity. It offers a totally different perspective on I think everything we normally talk about whether it's climate change or big data or the power of tech companies by asking one simple question. Are we good ancestors?
1: And the author of the book is a philosopher. He wrote a bestseller on empathy. He's a political scientist and co-founder of the School of Life.
2: And he is joining us today from his home in Oxford, Roman Krasnarek.
1: Roman thank you so much for joining us. We can see you sitting in your library, totally ready. You've done this more
0: often. I've done it a few times, but every conversation is unique. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> but
2: but uh, and so so how do you choose whether you you take the the bookshelves as a background or uh or sort of the uh the old plants, the cactuses? You have a sort of a wall with I saw it in the tegelicht uh Ah uh, yeah, right? the that's right. In the Licht one, that's in our kitchen. And
0: ah, okay. um, so that's a totally different place, uh, which I can't easily get my camera to. Okay,
2: okay. So this is just my normal study. Roman, we're going to talk about ancestors. Uh, normally we don't ask this question to our guests, but your name is Krznarik, right? Am I pronouncing it okay-ish? You pronounce it better than I do. So that's perfect. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us. Where does the name Krznarik originate from? Well, it is a
0: Croatian name. It means son of a fur trader. A Križnar is a fur trader. And there is a tiny village in Croatia called Krispoje, which has got about 15 houses in it, which I've been to. And almost everybody there has the same surname as me. And you go to the cemetery and there are hundreds of Krznarik's there. So that's one place I feel very at home in the tiny little bar there, where when I was there, four out of seven people had the surname Kuznodic.
2: So I'm asking because your book is about how to be an ancestor, and we will talk about that, but it's also about sort of respecting your own ancestors, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think, of course, all of us are embedded in Multi generational kinship groups. You know, most of us know our parents or grandparents, and then we might know our children if we have them, and possibly grandchildren at least. So that puts us in a minimum of five different generations, a stretch from beginning to end of maybe 200, even 300 years, possibly from the birth of your grandmother, say, to the death of your grandchild. So, here we are immediately stepping out of the present just by thinking for a moment about our own families. And of course, around the world, you've got different conceptions of connection with our ancestors. You know, in some cultures in Japan or in Native American culture, for example, there's a long connection with our ancestors going to the past. And in Western culture, we have that too, Of course, to a large extent. People love family history, and there are TV shows about family history, but there aren't so many TV shows about connecting with the future generations. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's what I've tried to explore in my recent book and research. You know, How can we connect through time in a way that changes not just how we think, but how we feel and how we act with regard to those unborn citizens of tomorrow?
2: Yeah,
1: Your book, The, the Good Ancestor, begins with medical researcher Jonas Salk, who invented and developed the first successful and safe uh, uh, polio vaccine, but he never started patented. Uh, Why do you start
0: your analysis and your book there? I start with Salk because Salk asked a question in the 1970s. He actually developed the polio vaccine back in the 50s. But in the 70s, he asked a question, which when I saw that question written down, it blew my mind. And the question was this, are we being good ancestors? Are we being good ancestors? And he believed that that was the question that should guide our civilization. Because in his view, and my view too, we've never had such impact on future generations, and we rarely take them into account in our decision making. So there's a question: How we're going to be judged by those generations of the future? How are we going to be judged for our impacts on the living worlds? For example, you know the impacts of carbon emissions. How are we going to be judged for? Our technological impacts, for example, how artificial intelligence or bioweapons might affect the future. And there's lots of other long term issues around as well that really matter. You know, are we doing the long term investment we need in public health care to get ready for the next pandemic that might be on the horizon? Are we tackling the deep racial injustice and wealth inequality that gets passed on from generation to generation? And all of these questions to me are about being. A good ancestor. So when I saw that question from sulk, you know sometimes when you 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 see something and it's impossible to unsee it. once I saw that question are we being good ancestors I suddenly understood myself as an ancestor as connected to the future and it was very different from you know you come across these ideas like intergenerational justice, which can sound a little bit abstract that doesn't feel like it's about me but being a good ancestor that's about me. And then when you put that together with the fact that there are literally billions upon billions of people who will be born in the future, you know, there's only 7.7 billion of us alive today, but in the next two centuries alone, tens of billions of people will be born. And how are they going to look back on us for what we did or didn't do when we had the chance? So I thank Salk for offering that question of, are we being a good ancestor?
2: Yeah, you're describing this this future and these future generations as, in terms of that we have uh, colonized the future. How would you how would you explain this?
0: Yeah, that's a metaphor which I developed in the book. And it's the idea that we treat the future like a distant colonial outpost, if the, as if there was nobody there. The future is the place where we dump ecological degradation and technological risk. And I think there's a question there, is it appropriate, in a way, to use a metaphor like decolonizing the future when decolonizing is a language obviously used by Black Lives Matter and, and other racial justice movements. And actually, I think there are really strong grounds for thinking of the future as a colonized territory. I mean, I'm from Australia and you know in the 18th and 19th century, when Britain colonized Australia, they drew on a legal doctrine now known as Terra nullius, Nobody's land to justify their conquest they treated the continent as if there was nobody there of course it was full of in, the indigenous population right? and i think in a similar way as there've been struggles against this doctrine of terra nullius now there are, there need to be struggles against a doctrine i think of as tempus nullius you know the latin for nobody's time we treat the future as nobody's time a similarly uninhabited territory that is ours for the taking and when you stop and think about it you know, future generations who we know will be there in those decades and centuries to come, they have no political rights or representation. They don't get to vote in an election. They have no influence at the marketplace, yet our actions influence them. And I guess the way I see it, just as there were national liberation struggles in the 20th century, say for the Algerians to kick out, kick out the French, there's now an intergenerational liberation struggle that we need to wage to stop the domination of the future by the present, by the tyranny of the now. So I think that colonization metaphor really gets at that idea. And also, one other little thing to add, which I didn't really talk about so much in my book, but you know, the colonization of the future is something that's very unequal. There will be certain parts of society that will be hit harder by the impacts of, say, the cl- climate crisis. And those are often you know, people of color, people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder because they can't protect themselves behind walls in the gated community so easily or put sandbags around their investment bank like Goldman Sachs did when Hurricane Sandy hit New York City. So there's a kind of climate apartheid coming our way. And that too is one of the ways that colonization is played out in relation to the future.
2: Yeah, Your book uh, is partly about uh, that we have not always been so isolated in the now, that there were times or places uh, uh, when we were better at, at, at sort of looking at the future and thinking about the future. Yet you are describing our current time as, uh, as, as pathological short-termism. How did we get, uh, end up in this, in this situation where we find ourselves now?
0: Well I certainly wouldn't want to over romanticize the past. I wouldn't like to say oh in medieval Europe everyone was thinking of the long future. They weren't. You know, people were dealing with poverty and pandemics and war and so on and trying to put food on the table. You know, very much living in the present. But in many ways I think over the last 500 or so years we have become more and more, a short term culture obsessed with the present. In a way, one of the factors it goes back to is the invention of the clock. The mechanical clock in Europe in the 14th century started slicing up time. So the first clocks used to chime every hour, maybe every 15 minutes, but by 1700, most clocks had minute hands, and by 1800, they had second hands. And then the clock became the key machine of the industrial revolution, getting the assembly line moving faster and faster. And now we've got nanosecond speed share trading. So that's one way in which time has been speeding up and the future has been disappearing as it rushes towards the present. But then, of course, there are other explanations of why we are so short term today. Some of them are obvious ones like digital distraction, looking at your phone 110 times a day on average. Um, But there's also things like speculative capitalism. I mean, neoliberal capitalism since the 1970s has been incredibly short-term. That's why we've had so many booms and busts in markets. I mean, the average length of time people hold shares on the New York Stock Exchange has dropped from about four years in 1970 to about four months today. So there's this speeding up of time in so many ways that conquest of the future, Um, and a a, a lack of recognition that in a way we need to think about the old golden rule, which appears in almost every religion, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But let's think about it through time. Let's do unto future generations, how we'd want past generations to have done unto us.
1: As a a driver of what you describe as political presentism, you also mentioned the the concept of of discounting, which was in a way... New to me. Can you maybe explain a little bit how that works and how it's uh, and how that, in a way,
0: colonizes our future? Discounting is a really fundamental topic that you might learn about if you study economics, but it's absolutely a political concept as well. In fact, it's a a form of intergenerational injustice dressed up to look like a rational economic methodology. And discounting is a way that businesses and governments think about and treat the future. So, you know, if you look at someone in the distance, the further and further away they are from you, the smaller and smaller they get. Well, that's how discounting works. The further and further people are from us in time, the less and less weight we put on them when making decisions about their welfare. So for example, when a government's deciding whether to invest in a long-term renewable energy project like a tidal energy project, well, they'll put much more weight on the benefits which come to present generations than come to future generations. They use a formula known as discounting. They'll discount at 3% a year. So by the time you get to the possible benefits for 100 years from now, those people in 100 years from now are treated at maybe one hundredth of the value of somebody alive today. So it means that governments tend to Support projects which benefit the present much more than the future. And we need to overturn this idea of discounting. In fact, many governments are starting to change what they call the discount rate, the speed at which future generations' welfare is diminished through time. So it's a technical concept, but actually it is political. And it's about, it's a kind of failure of the imagination, the idea that those future generations will be able to deal with problems if you open an economics textbook they say oh we can discount the value of future generations because we'll have all this economic growth and those future people can deal with the problems when they come to them well look no amount of money in your pocket can reverse the melting of the greenland ice sheet you know why should we discount the value of future generations they are of much value as
2: we are today you mentioned the concept of imagination um, I would say your book is, is, is filled with imagination. Uh, let us talk about some, 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 some examples that, that got us excited. Um, you're starting one of your chapters uh, about cathedral thinking with the example of the beams in New College Oxford. Can I uh, uh, tell you, uh, ask you to, to share the story of, of New College Oxford with us?
0: I happened to be about a 10 minute bike ride from New College Oxford oh, which really? was built in the 14th century you know right now and there's this story that has gone around in the last couple of decades that in the 19th century when the the oak beams of the dining hall in New College from the 14th century had um were falling apart that the college had actually planted 500 years before an oak forest so they would have the trees they needed to repair the, the dining hall um, ceiling, hundreds of years later. And this was a kind of a meme which appeared in um, TV programs and so on. What incredible long term thinking, planting trees to be used hundreds of years ahead. Well, I went and did some research on it and turned out it was complete rubbish. It wasn't true. But actually, the very fact that we as a culture love that idea of planting trees which might be used hundreds of years ahead tells us something it, it tells us that we do live in the age of the tyranny of the now because we wish our politicians were looking that far ahead and in fact there are real life projects where people are thinking with that kind of time horizon you can think back of course not to new colleges oak beams but to medieval cathedrals you know the the alminster the Lutheran Church in Southwest Germany was begun in 1377. it wasn't finished until 1890 more than 500 years later. That's real cathedral thinking, embarking on projects with time horizons, stretching long beyond your own career or your own lifetime. Or in the modern world, there's the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which is collecting millions of seeds in an indestructible rock bunker in the Arctic Circle that's designed to last for a thousand years. And I think there's something really important there about the imagination because human beings have this capacity for the temporal pirouette like kind of ballet dances across time at one moment we can be looking at our phones and the next moment planning the song lists for our own funerals or creating a seed bank that's going to last into the next millennium and that's an amazing capacity and i think our brains are often in this struggle between the short and long term you know do we party today or save for our pensions for tomorrow do we upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity. And we need to use that long-term thinking capacity much more than we currently do. In
1: 2014, you wrote a book on empathy. Is it possible to learn to empathize?
0: I think one of the things about my book, Empathy, um, one of its biggest failures in a way was that I raised the question in that book of how do we empathize with future generations. How do we step into the shoes of future generations? But I never really explored how to do it. At the time, it seemed almost too difficult. It was enough for me to try and explore how do we step into the shoes of um, people who are voiceless in today's society or powerless on the margins and, and hear their voices or hear their stories, whether they're a homeless person living on the street of your own city or someone hit by an earthquake in Japan. But then there's that question, God, how do we step into the shoes of people who we can never meet, who we can never talk to? And in a way, that's what the good ancestor is all about. It's an attempt to deal with that problem I never adequately faced in my book on empathy. And it might sound impossible to step into the shoes of those future generations, but I think we can do it with the human imagination. My daughter is 12 years old. I can easily close my eyes and imagine her on her 90th birthday party, surrounded by family and friends and loved ones, I can look out the window and try to imagine what kind of world that is. And my daughter, when she's 90, I mean, that she could be alive easily in the year 2100. And if she has grandchildren, they'll be alive towards the end of the 22nd century. That isn't science fiction. That is an intimate family fact, just a couple of steps away from my own life. And you might say, well, we don't know what the future is going to be like. How can you possibly imagine her world? And yeah, sure, we don't know whether the the year 2049 is going to be anything like the film Blade Runner 2049. Will the machines have taken over and you know, general artificial intelligence have transformed society? So we don't know about that, but we do know certain things, particularly about our ecological future. We know we are heading, given business as usual, for three to four degrees of global heating by 2100 and one to two meters of sea levels. If I think about my daughter when she's 90 and around 2100, I'm thinking about the air she breathes and the water she drinks. You know, we don't know exactly what that world's going to be like, but I know enough to know that I need to do something about that now because of the long term impacts of carbon emissions and ocean acidification and biodiversity loss. Um, So I think we can start making that empathic connection with the future, but it's tough in a culture. A hyper individualistic capitalist culture where we have been severed or cut off from that intergenerational connection. You know, if you're, um, you know, from some Native American communities like the Haudunoshawnee or the Lakota people, talk about the idea of seventh generation decision making, you know, a deep philosophy of ecological stewardship which connects you with the future. Or in Aotearoa, New Zealand, there's the Maori concept of whakapapa, the idea that you're in a long chain of life going far into the past and long to the future. And the the light happens to be shining here and now. What we need to do is widen that light. So we see or feel that the living and the dead and the unborn are all in the room together with us.
2: Mm -hmm. If you would would have to look at these examples of these cultures, these people who are really good in this seven generational thinking, and they are, you might say they are good ancestors. Or or if you look back at the, the people or the civilizations that have been really good at cathedral thinking, sometimes literally by, by, uh, by building cathedrals, uh, what is it they do good or uh, they did good? What can we
0: learn from them? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think one answer when you look at long-term thinking in indigenous cultures it is, of course, the connection with the land, the sense of interdependence. With the land, the idea that the air I'm breathing or the water I'm drinking is going to be recycled and be there, you know, for the generations to come. And so I think that's one answer. But then you might say, well, wait a second. Actually, if you think about cities, for example, cities are really good at taking the long view. I mean, if you think about Paris or London in the 19th century, they built sewer systems, which are still in use today right, this long-term engineering, for example, or, you know, obviously the dikes and polders in the in the Netherlands, you know, mm. going back to the 16th century, the water boards, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, the, the Watterschappen, mm-hmm. you know, to, to manage this, right? Now, this is long-term cathedral thinking too. And so it's not just something found in indigenous societies, but it can mm-hmm. be found in, you know, um, let's say the modern Western societies and in urban societies too. And it's partly to do with, I think, I don't know if I'd say there's one particular core reason, but I think there's something to do with the strength of community. That if you're part of a community that you feel is going to keep existing, you feel a sense of connection. That's why those medieval cathedral builders could embark on these long-term construction projects because they knew that their religion had been around for a thousand years and will probably be around for a thousand years more. Mm-hmm. Equally, in cities, you feel people with an incredible allegiance Pride in their cities, like the people of Paris. And look at Paris, the way it's responded to COVID 19 with quite a lot of long term thinking response, saying, okay, let's take this as a moment for a kind of Green New Deal philosophy. Let's close the roads and turn them into parks and cycleways and so on. Or you find this in, of course, indigenous cultures where there's strong senses of community. Or even I read this great book in research uh, for the good ancestor called Legacy, and it was about the New Zealand rugby team. And the New Zealand rugby team is inspired by that Maori concept of Vakapapa, the idea of lineage or genealogy. And because they feel they're part of this community of players that's existed for years and decades and will exist for decades in the future. And they kind of want to pass on the their their the, the jersey, the clothes they wear, the team uniform to the next generation and be respectful. And they've got all these Very interesting rituals they have. So, like at the end of one of their rugby games, whoever has been the man of the match or scored the most points is the person who cleans up the changing room after the match. So, they kind of put at the bottom of the ladder, but it's a kind of sort of respect for what it's all about a sense of legacy, a sense of continuity. So, I think we can generate this through community. And that might then lead you to thought, okay, it's going to be hard to have this intergenerational thinking if your communities are broken up or if you are in very isolated areas, or even if your urban life is very atomized and unconnected. And that would be an interesting hypothesis to look
2: at. I was also thinking about one other concept these cathedral thinkers have in common. Um, One of the things you are talking about is crisis, urgency. The, the, The London sewer system you describe in your book was built because people were dying um uh, and it was stinking real bad uh, the 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 great stink um and another thing the the other uh uh, you you might say urgency or crisis is the is the dutch flooding in 53 you talk about in your book um one other thing is is religion and and you are describing it as a, as a a sense of community you could also say it's fear fear of of god am i Am I being a good ancestor? Am I being a good person? Am I being a good human? So crisis and religion uh, and and the key concept there would be fear. Are people not most of the time trying to be a good ancestor because they are afraid of judgment or dying themselves?
0: That's a very interesting way of looking at it. I certainly think that fear... Is a motivator for long-term thinking, as you mentioned. There, after the great stink of 1858 in London, that's when they built the sewers. And what was interesting there was that the, the terrible smell of raw shit being dumped in the River Thames not only affected the labouring poor in London, but it was the smell went into the houses of Parliament, which in fact had a new ventilation system, which had just been built because the Westminster Palace had burnt down not long before. And so members of parliament couldn't even breathe; they had to wear masks like they're doing now, um, and that's partly why they passed the emergency legislation. So there's certainly a and a case for arguing that fear is very important, particularly when it hits those in power. Mm-hmm. You know, when when the impacts hit those in power, and that's why Greta Thunberg said, "Your house is on fire. I want you to panic." You know, it was about trying to. Instill or encourage that sense of fear. Of course, we know fear is not a good motivator for social movements, for example. For people on the ground, fear is something that can paralyze you. You want a sense of hope. But when it hits those in power, I think that's when it can have its biggest impacts. But then raising the question of religion, that's a really interesting um, aspect as well. Because of course, you know, religion has powered itself through fear, particularly in medieval times when the idea of hell was so prevalent. And that's one of the ways that people were thinking a lot about the future, uh, in the sense of, am I going to end up in hell, or am I going to end up in heaven, or is there going to be a last judgment, and when is when is when when is um, you know Jesus going to come back, or whoever your God is going to come, come back? And that was sending people's minds into the future. Um, but certainly, the research that I've done on this would seem to suggest that religion isn't so powerful Today, at sending people's minds into the long term, in terms of getting them to act on intergenerational justice, well, so let's say religious people are, are no more likely than secular people to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think there's an exception there, which is indigenous cultures, but some religions, Western religions, are slowly catching up. So, for example, in 2015, um, Pope Francis's last encyclical called Laudato Si' Praise Be. He talks about intergenerational solidarity and intergenerational justice. So there's the leader of the Catholic Church explicitly talking about, in a way, our colonization of the future. Um, and it was a really powerful message. I've never seen anything like that really coming out of the Catholic tradition. And that's, that's really fascinating because whether it can be put into practice uh, is another thing. I, I don't actually know whether the Vatican bank has divested from fossil fuels or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all secretive, so we probably will never know. Um, but I certainly think there's a case. I do believe actually religion really is important for helping us think long-term in the sense that this is still where so many people around the world get their values from. So the more the religions can switch on the, the long-term thinking brain of ours, the better.
1: If you, if you look at Political practice at the moment. I mean, uh, there was a an interesting stat in the Dutch newspaper this week that only one and a half percent of media coverage in our last elections was about climate, and over fifth over fifty percent was about healthcare uh, and Corona. Um, this is the reality we live in at the moment. Um, what can we do about that? How can we? How can we counter that trend and that intrinsic short-termism in our, in our political systems?
0: Of course, there are really good reasons why governments are sometimes very short-term in the sense that they are dealing with a crisis like a pandemic, like an earthquake, and they need to be agile in the same way that if my son breaks his leg, I want to be on the case and rush him to the hospital straight away and not think long-term but act short-term. On the other hand, what we do know if you step back and take the big picture is that our political systems are enveloped trapped by a political presentism which makes it very difficult for politicians to see beyond the next election or the latest headline or opinion poll or tweet you know they have corporate funders pushing them they have all those opinion polls etc and so the question is is there any way of injecting long term thinking into the very structures of democracy itself and i believe there is not because I simply believe it, but because there is the evidence of it around the world. Um, it's scattered, but there are really good examples of long-termism in politics. So, for example, Wales has a future generations commissioner, like an ombudsman, a political position. It's a non-party position. And the commissioner's job is to look at the impact of policy, whether it's in education, healthcare, environment, up to 30 years in the future or there are legal cases being brought around the world on behalf of future generations. So in the US, there's a movement called Our Children's Trust, which has launched a legal campaign on behalf of 21 young people who are campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. And they've inspired lawsuits around the world from Uganda to to Colombia. And that's an amazing idea. Probably one of the most amazing shifts in the history of rights since the French Revolution, giving rights to future generations. And in a way, the the Urgenda case in in the Netherlands is part of that movement um, of of trying to hold governments to account for the, say, their carbon emission, meeting carbon emission targets, because this is going to impact not just people today, but in the years and decades to come. And then I say there's a third. So that's a sort of a the first way. The Welsh way is like a Pla- Plato's guardians, a sort of a uh, an overseer um, looking after us, which has problems of democratic legitimacy. Like why should my kids think trust a, a future generations commissioner? Mm-hmm. And the second route is a legal route. And then there's a third route, which is about citizens assemblies. Would you say that every self-respecting country needs a minister of future affairs? I'd like to see more and more countries adopting. That kind of position. Like in the United Arab Emirates, they have a minister for the future. Now, that's a dictatorship, right? Mm-hmm. And they probably have more power than a minister of the future in the Netherlands. But I think we need these kinds of new positions for uh, two reasons, in a way, or in two different ways. One is we need them to legitimize the very discussion around intergenerational justice to get us talking. The fact that Wales as a future generations commissioner, who doesn't in fact even have very much power, has kick-started a conversation about our responsibilities to future generations, which has been really important. But the second thing I'd say about having a minister of the future of some kind is that the problem will be, well, going back to this idea, why should my kids trust that That minister to look after their interests. Or if I'm a a migrant who's come from West Africa, why should I think that some old white man or woman or whatever is going to represent my interests? Because the future, we have to find ways of representing a plurality of futures, all the different futures that might be out there that people might care for. And that's why, if there was going to be a minister of the future in the Netherlands, there should also be parallel to it, um, or they should be advised by a citizen's assembly. Kind of body, like the kind of bodies that have emerged in Ireland, Belgium, Spain, where you get a representative sample of the population with different representing different age groups and and social backgrounds, ethnicity, and gender, and that they can have uh, a role in public discussions, advising a minister, holding them to account in a way, bringing a bit of deliberative democracy or you know what the ancient Greeks may have called a participatory form of democracy uh, into. Why, why? Our- why yeah. not?
2: Why not a sort of benign dictatorship? Wow! Why not a benign dictatorship? It's a very tempting idea, isn't it? Wouldn't it be nice
0: <laughs> if you at could just have a friend? You could get something done, right? Get something done. All those arguing politicians and so planning, annoying. Get aren't something they? done. Yeah, you know. Wish. Ah, oh, well, couldn't we just be like China? Look at their amazing investment in long term. Green energy, or look at Singapore. They might give up a few civil and political rights, but they've got long term investment in education and health. Yes, benign dictatorship. Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? And in fact, because I used to be a political scientist back in the 1990s, I can hardly remember it, but one thing I did learn uh, was about how to do statistics. And um, I started thinking when people started saying to me, Oh, we just need benign dictators. That's how we can be good ancestors. Um, I thought, okay, well, what's the actual Empirical truth of that. Is it true that autocracies perform better than democracies when it comes to long term public policy? Um, And I really investigated this with a a, um, great statistician called Jamie McQuilkin, because I used to be an expert apparently in measuring democracy. So anyway, we did some statistics and we drew on Jamie's um, Intergenerational Solidarity Index, which is a brilliant index which measures long term public policy performance of governments, 122 governments in areas of Um, education, healthcare, uh, inequality, environmental investment, renewables, deforestation, and so on. And we ranked all of the world's countries, 122 countries, and then we plotted them against their democracy scores. There's all these democracy indices around measures of democracy. And what we found was that of the 25 highest scoring countries in terms of long-term public policy, 21 of them were democracies. And of the 25 lowest scoring countries, Twenty-one of them were autocratic governments; they were military dictatorships and monarchies. So, there is no systematic evidence that benign dictators will come along and save everything for us. It's better to put your hope in democracy. But every democracy could get better at long-term thinking. That was my conclusion, anyway. After looking at it at some detail.
2: Yeah, you are, you are, you are a philosopher, uh, academic, writer, thinker who are we most dependent on bringing the narrative about the future about being a good ancestor uh, to a to a, to a higher level is it guys like you is it politicians is it artists you know
0: the first thought that came to my head was Netflix
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I can't quite justify that it's certainly not me as a philosopher I mean I guess one of the things I've learned over the years many years of writing books is that books work for some people in terms of shifting their minds, shifting their thoughts, changing their actions, but they certainly don't work for everyone. I mean, after I wrote my book on empathy, which was a book that did well, but I knew it wasn't reaching certain kinds of people. So I founded a museum called the Empathy Museum, which travels around the world and you can have experiences of being another person. So we've got this exhibit called A Mile in My Shoes, where you can literally slip on the shoes of a stranger. It's a giant shoebox. You walk inside it, you can put on their shoes and listen to a story of them talking about their own life in their own words, whether it's a Syrian refugee or a guy who's been in prison for 14 years. Um, so I like these other ways of reaching people and changing ideas. So I think we need to be operating. Yes, there need to be writers writing books, but there need to be museums. There need to be politi- political movements. There need to be direct action as well as people working on the inside. There need to be e- economic stuff. But in the end, you know, I think in today's world, Where is it that most of our values come from? I mentioned religion, but it's education, of course, is the main thing which shapes our minds. If I look at my kids, you know, who are, you know, I've got twins who are 12, they're not just technological natives, they're ecological natives. You know, they've grown up and been educated in a way where caring for the planet is kind of normal. You know, they think it's kind of disgusting to mix food in with paper in the waste bin you know it just seems totally bizarre to them but i i did that when i was a kid i mixed those two things together without thinking about it but we need to put much more effort i think in that educating young people for long term vision with long term values intergenerational justice it's happening in some educational institutions and curricula in many it isn't but i think that would be you know a core area of work and so don't let the philosophers do it all please
2: We have been talking about um, what planners can or could do. We've been talking about uh, uh, legal solutions, about democracy or benign dictatorship uh, for that matter. Um, What is it you say we uh, or I could do? Uh, Because reading your book, um, I I noticed that uh, what stayed with me the most were the small examples, putting a zero before 2020 um uh, making sure you cannot see your clocks in your house anymore um that's something you do right so so what what would be the small things small sort of uh, uh tweaking in my daily life be i guess the ultimate small tweak
0: would be to carry around with you in your mind a question which is am i being a good ancestor in other words When you're making little decisions, you're at the supermarket and you pick up a pack of green beans, which have been flown from Kenya. And you can ask yourself, am I being a good ancestor? If I buy those beans that I know have been pumping carbon out into the sky, well, maybe you can put them back and make your risotto with something else. Um, You know, these are the little questions in everyday life. All, as you said, they're putting the zero in front of the date.
2: I asked myself this question uh, after reading your book and I thought, no, I'm I'm an asshole. I'm not a good ancestor, <laughs> Roman. What now, Tais? I don't know about you. Are you a good I, ancestor? I never buy beans from Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: no, no, no. I'm not. I'm. I'm, I'm ashamed.
2: <laughs> I'm ashamed. well uh, look, I'm I will not be a good a ancestor. One.
0: Yeah. I'm not a good ancestor either. I always write books on things that I struggle with. I wrote a book on empathy because I felt I wasn't very good at it. I wrote a book on being a good ancestor because I thought I wasn't very good at thinking long-term. Um, but, you know, we can all get this. This is about human choice. You know, this is about making different decisions in our life. It's about agency. And it's actually quite exciting when you start doing small things differently. Like something I did recently, is a small example, was that I- Got out of my bank and moved my savings into a more ethical, green bank. In fact, a Dutch bank, Triodos, right, which has been going for about forty years. And there are lots of other, you know, ethical options out there. But that's just one example. I, how ridiculous! Why have my money been sitting in a normal bank for all these years when it could have been sitting in something like Triodos? Um, and those are the little things we can do every day life. But you know, there is an urgency to where we are at this moment in history. And individual action is not enough. We need to be collective actors as well. I mean, we need to support movements for future generations commissioners, or we need to go out on the streets. And, you know, of course, it all depends on our personality. Some people are happy to lock themselves on to the, the fence or the, the door of a big investment bank, which is investing in fossil fuels. Other people want to write poetry. Sure, do it. But try and do things which connect with other people. And ultimately, I think and this is something which is at the the cornerstone of a lot of my work, is the importance of conversation. We need to start having conversations about these topics. Talk to your neighbors about what legacy do they want to leave for their family or for their community, for the living world. Embark on that conversation about what they think our obligations to future generations should be, or whether they've had any experiences of deep time. Have conversations you've never had before with family, friends, strangers. I think Ultimately, that is one of the ways that we change the world by saying things we haven't said before, exploring these things. And I think, yeah, the, the way we talk, the new narratives and stories we start telling and developing that is the beginning of the walking the path to being a good ancestor. You were listening to the Dependance podcast.
1: Our editors are Shereyman Dias, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarse, and myself Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio, and the graphic design is by Studio Space. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontenelle and the municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast and check our website, thedependance.eu for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.